0: Turn out light. open the curtains.
1: Go and do useful things. You will. No, oh, I said it, you will.
2: Hello. Hello. And welcome to Diversify. My name is Holly. And my name's Kate. And we are here in your ear holes to. Uh, drop some truth bombs I don't know um truth bombs not real bombs how are you
1: Kate I've been in a little hole you know like a hobbit hole more than other hobbit holes that we've been in in the last 12 months
2: I was gonna say like you said that as if not everybody else has just been in it's like a hole within
1: a hole within a hole
2: I was in a hole within a hole within a hole within a hole over Christmas because I got Did you COVID, have COVID over Christmas. I lost my sense of taste and smell on Christmas Eve.
1: As is the tradition.
2: It was really annoying because we had so much good food ready for Christmas Day. Um, but it gave me a real appreciation for the... Uh, the texture, texture of, of food, yeah. <laughs> and I could still taste uh, berry flavoured gin. So every evening I'd say to my girlfriend, I'd be like, um, please can I have my gin? Can you put lots was it, of berries? Was it
1: berry flavoured gin or was it slow gin?
2: I believe at the time it was pear drop flavoured gin.
1: Am I being a gin snob? I am, aren't I? Yeah. I dare you. Get out. Yeah, you are. I can't, I don't think there's a segue from this.
2: I mean, you know what? I think you need to appreciate the different diversities of gin. And not only was this pear drop one really nice, it was also sparkly. So not only could I not taste or smell anything, and it was one of the only things I could taste and smell, I could also appreciate it sitting on my own in my bed at Christmas.
1: Do you know what else you can appreciate sitting alone in your bed? um a really good book
2: i really thought you were gonna say something else
1: we all did
2: do you know what i was reading a book called the giver of stars by jojo moyes so there you go there's a good book about women speaking of women who like
1: books hello who guest. are you guest
0: hi guys i'm catherine and i'm the founder of laffy press which is a new independent publishers
1: what does laffy mean i've always i've, I've wanted to ask you this this that is means.
0: really sad that this is the first question because it doesn't mean anything, Kate. It just sounds nice. It really, it—it's a bit like my surname. It started off as an anagram of my surname, and then I was like, "Hmm, I could make this sound better if I changed it." It Can just we sounds make good. it
1: stand for something.
0: Yeah, we like, try.
2: I mean, it stands for something now. It stands for a business.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what it means. What it means is the publisher that it is.
2: If Brexit's allowed to stand for Brexit. Brexit
0: means Brexit. Exactly.
2: And we can literally like have people elected into office when that's their platform. Then you can say that about your private That
0: is a very good point. I'm going to immediately steal that and use that (laughs) at any point that anybody asks.
1: Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to set up Left Press?
0: It's always quite hard to think of like the exact reason for why you've done something especially when it's something that's been kind of like coming to fruition for a number of years and something i've been thinking about for a long time it kind of all started like i would say a year and a half ago when i was kind of like busy feeling all warm and fuzzy about like great books that I love and like books that have changed my life I think I just read a Joan Didion book and I was like this has changed my life this means so much to me books mean so much to me and I was like feeling really great about it just like enjoying books and thinking about how great they are and then there's been so much kind of awareness raising around like black lives matter and you know like that's been a longer thing about identity politics around race around gender around um lgbtq plus like about trans rights like all of the kind of like oppressed groups in society and i was just thinking there's probably books out there either haven't been published because people haven't had an opportunity to be published you know um either through like bias or prejudice or publishers just thinking this isn't marketable, we're not interested in these people, we're not interested in this story, or writers who haven't basically had the means to be writing. So they either haven't had the mental space or time or energy to be writing because life's been a struggle, or even if they're not at that level, they haven't had the kind of financial backing or the money behind them to be able to pursue that lifestyle. So those stories just don't exist you know those are massive social issues but I also felt personally affronted by the fact that I was like missing out on stories that hadn't been written or hadn't been published and just becoming really aware of everything that's missed in the current system that we're in and it was also around that time I don't know how much you guys know about the ALCS but it's basically they help authors get paid for things like libraries lending books or people photocopying books that they already own so like all the little payments rather than the big royalty payments they they help authors get those but they also commission research and and kind of like talk in public about writing and they did this massive study on how much authors actually get paid and they found that basically professional writers so this is people who you know writing is their career we would all think they've made it they've got an agent they've got a publisher they're not self-publishing it's, you know, that traditional route, they've absolutely made it, they are earning, on average, just over £5 an hour. So like below minimum wage. And, you know, this study got like a bit of media interest. I think Philip Pullman, Sally Gardner, people like that were writing about it. And I was reading it. And I was like, God, there's just so much wrong with the publishing industry. At the same time, like the job I was in, I was like dealing with a lot of publicists, dealing with a lot of agents, and just thinking, some of these books are amazing. But some of them are just copies of the ones that I saw you released last year, because that's what you think, uh, you know, is going to sell. So there, there wasn't diversity of authorship and there wasn't diversity of stories that were coming out. I could see a direct correlation. So I just was really frustrated and I thought I would use my experience to try and change that, basically.
2: I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about who gets to write stories. Yeah. And what is considered, I guess, quote, unquote, sellable? And, and so often, I don't think it is sellable. It's just what's considered sellable. So yeah. it's the same with the movie business. Like, there'll be a film that's fronted by black women and it will make millions and millions and millions of dollars, but they won't make another one because they'll be like, oh, that's too quote-unquote niche. It won't sell. And it's like, but it is selling. It's not even based on what is selling. It's based on what a bunch of middle-aged white men think will sell even when confronted with data that doesn't yeah.
0: match up. This issue of cultural gatekeepers is like such a massive thing that I have a problem with because like what we all have access to as consumers of culture, whether it's like books or films or music or whatever, we, it's so filtered and the people who get to filter it You know, that's a power structure. They might be there because they have a great education and they might be there because they have great experience, but we know like how these things tend to correlate with like race and gender in particular and class. So power is kind of like for sure concentrating in certain demographics. I'm not saying those people aren't intelligent at all, but there is very little diversity in the cultural gatekeepers. So they don't have a good understanding of what the diverse audience out there which is all of us, um, what what we actually want
1: to sort of hear and read and see. What was the fact that you gave me in one of your emails? You mentioned that two thirds of the publishing industry is owned by two different companies.
0: Yeah. So there was was like a massive merger recently, which was um, Bertelsmann and Simon and Schuster. I mean, I don't know how much people know really about how the publishing industry works, but already, you know, you you might think, oh, this book is published by this publishing house, and this book is published by this publishing house. But really, what that means is both those books are published by Penguin Random House. And there's like a lot of moving things around, like one publishing house might drop something, because it doesn't look good. But another publishing house that's under the same publishing umbrella might then put it out because it's still going to ultimately make money but it's not on brand because this is their woke arm and this is their like we really don't care we just want money arm something like that just happened with simon and schuster actually they dropped oh i forget his name which is really frustrating it was to do with trump <laughs> um
2: uh, are we talking about um uh, is it hawley The senator actually stormed the Capitol.
0: Yes. So Simon and Schuster dropped his book, but now it's been picked up by another publisher, which is not actually Simon and Schuster, but Simon and Schuster are their distributor. So they are going to make money from this book. They don't mind that. They've not said like, we hate what you did. We're keeping you at arm's length. They've said, you're not on brand for us. We're not having our logo on your book, but we will take money that your book makes. So it's such a complicated web of how all of these things are interrelated. And it's something that people don't necessarily know about. And so this big merger that you're talking about, Kate, basically means that now this kind of like giant merged publishing machine owns, I think, 72% of all English language books in the world, which is just fucking crazy. Because it also means that, you know, the type of change that I'm talking about where authors would be paid fairly for their work. If there's no competition in the market of publishers, you know, the rates that authors are offered, they can just say, all of these imprints offer you about 7%. And that's just the way it is. You have no way of just saying, well, I want to be published with somebody else that offers me more because no one does, because they're all owned by the same company.
1: I am working on a novel myself at the moment, and I did this maths you know, in one of those lockdown, it's 2am and I can't sleep. Yeah. And tried to figure out how much money I'd make if I sold like 30,000 books. And it was something ridiculous, like three grand.
0: I know, it's crazy. And it's not like, you know, some industries, uh, they are struggling. So like, they they can't necessarily, you know, pay people absolutely loads. Like th- there are like some industries where these things happen, where it's, it's almost like a different economy sort of like an anarchic time economy you do a bit for me I do a bit for you and things just work differently but like I, I think like the morality around reading people think it think sort of the book industry is really nice like reading's a really good thing to do it's got a kind of like morality attached to it that it doesn't deserve it's making absolutely loads of money for some people and authors who are the only irreplaceable link are being paid on average about seven percent royalties which is just as you say kate if you do the maths there'll be some people who can earn loads but the majority of people yeah about three thousand pounds
1: oh but it's really good exposure it <laughs> yeah. makes your instagram probably good if you have a published book so
0: there is this thing with cultural currency where big publishing houses are obviously offering massive validation to authors who get published with them. You know, I would have probably been this person in the past as well. You know, they've been working so hard on something they love. It's really difficult to break through in the creative industries. And like, what an amazing ego boost. But years down the line, when the major publishing companies are still making massive profits, and you've made 7% in royalties of a book that sold fine, but it didn't Sell, you know, as well as a Salman Rushdie book or something like that, you know, you will be trying to take that kudos to the supermarket to buy your meals, which you can't do. So it, it's kind of breaking through people's understanding of how valuable it is to be published with a major publisher, and asking people to think more highly of themselves and think that their work has a greater worth and you know, in today's economy, if major publishers are going to be making so much money, it's not asking too much to be paid for your labour. It's, it's just normal. Every other industry, pretty much, you, you do have to be paid a fair wage, you have to be paid minimum wage. So even asking for minimum wage at this stage would be progress.
1: Yeah. And how does LaFi work in terms of allowing for this to happen for its writers?
0: The point that I started from was, what is the biggest percentage of royalties that we could pay authors and survive on a not-for-profit basis? So this company, we're not registered as not-for-profit because that's complicated and expensive to do, but that's the ethos. We're not making a profit. Um, So what's the biggest percentage um, that authors could be paid and for us to cover our costs? which doesn't include, you know, for example, me taking a full time wage, I mean, like covering the costs of actually producing books. So we offer authors 70% royalties, and the company keeps 30% of royalties, and all of that is reinvested. There are basically two ways that you can be published with the company. So what has to happen first is you submit to us in the way that people might be used to submitting to agents. So it might be if you're writing a novel, you know, three chapters or something like 40 to 50,000 words, a synopsis and a covering letter. And we do have commissioning editors and I read submissions as well. And then we select who would we want to go forward with and publish. So there is still that hurdle to have to go through. It's, it's not like a totally open field. But then after that point, we're basically asking people to self-assess their financial situation and decide how to proceed. So one option is if you are a privileged person and you have plenty of money and you want to invest in a project where you know you're getting 70% of the profits, you can pay the upfront costs, which is like a donation to the company. Of getting your book published so for you know we on the website you'll you'll see there are different costs for like different numbers of books but it starts like just over a thousand pounds to get your books published the cover design the editors paid etc if you can afford to do that you do that and then you kind of get the returns with interest with the 70 percent of your royalties if you can't afford to do that you let us know and we either have the funds readily available from the 30% earnings that we've made on other people's books, or from money we've raised through merch, or through fundraising that we've done with philanthropists or organisations that give funding to arts companies. So there are basically two ways.
1: So even if you don't have uh, financial privilege, which is something in itself, you can still get published if you like their work.
0: Yeah, there will never be a case where um, we would say, like, we would love to publish this, but because you can't pay the initial cost, we're not going to do that. That will never happen. Even if we don't have the funds immediately available to do it, we have such great kind of resources for fundraising. Like, we've already launched one kind of run of merch, which has done really well. So hopefully we're going to be able to announce a writer's grant off the back of that we're launching our next drop of merch which again should go towards covering the cost of like another book being published i worked with a professional knitwear designer and we came up with a pattern for this jumper and there's going to be two options of ways that you can buy it so you'll either be able to buy a kit where you knit your own so the pattern will be included instructions and tips needles if you need them are an optional extra um, and the wool Yeah, so you'd be able to knit your own, or you can pay more, but it is like a more expensive route because, of course, we have to pay hand knitters um, and you can get it knitted up and delivered to you at a later date. We worked with Everpress for our first drop of merch, which is like a totally sustainable pre order model. But so, yeah, there's always um, routes of fundraising that are open to us, and we're really experienced at doing that. So it's never going to be an obstacle to people to be published with us. But one of the things that Sort of, I personally did when I was setting this up was to actually think about like what is the source of my privilege and how do I actually go about the really sort of like emotionally but also practically difficult job of undermining my own privilege, which is, I think, something that's like not talked about loads when people are discussing social inequalities you know they want to say they want to sort of call out privilege and maybe even call out their own privilege and say yes I'm privileged but you don't really see them changing their lives a lot of the time so I kind of thought well I'm willing to take a pay cut so that other people can basically benefit from my experience and also benefit from my privilege that allows me to do that and that's in a way like what we're asking writers who want to be published with us and who can afford to go down that model of covering the initial costs of their book being created. We're asking them as well, you know, if a thousand pounds doesn't really mean much to you, then support this movement and invest in yourself and invest in the company, basically.
2: What kind of stuff do you want to be publishing? Is it anything kind of at the moment? Or do you have like specific things in mind? Be that Anything from fiction to non-fiction, you know, young adult, kids, adult?
0: At the moment, it's just adult fiction, and by that we mean novels and short stories. So neither of the commissioning editors are experts in poetry. Um, We've got two commissioning editors on board at the moment, one of whom spent four years at Penguin as an editor, so he's got absolutely loads of experience in publishing, and he works primarily in literary fiction. And the other commissioning editor, Hattie, has worked with a lot of writers as well, and she's a writer herself. And she's particularly interested in literary fiction, middle grade fiction and fantasy as well. But I mean, we are really open. We we are genuinely looking for things that are new and things that are different and things that are not a carbon copy of what is currently considered to be doing well in the fiction marketplace we really want to sort of change tastes and introduce people to different voices different kinds of stories so don't worry if if what you're writing doesn't emulate uh you know normal people or something not that normal people wasn't good um we're looking for for a whole range of stuff and we we really want to kind of be receiving those submissions at the moment what do
2: you think is important as a white person to keep in mind on like how we can use our privilege in order to help other voices come forward um without it being condescending? I suppose it's not really a white it's person. It's really hard to answer that. <laughs>
0: like... Yeah, I mean it isn't, but I also think like we basically have to be involved in our own kind of like social analysis. It's obviously not going to be up to white people to decide, like, what's the future of society and how should everything be? Or how should people from other races or, you know, also to do with class, also to do with sexuality? You know, all of these things, like if you're of one group, you can't decide how the other group feels. I, You know, it goes without saying, really. But I don't know if you guys read Robin D'Angelo's book about white fragility. That was like something that was really key for me it's so worth a read or a listen it's basically talking about how white people respond to comments about society being racist or comments about implicit bias implicit prejudice by saying yeah those other white people really get it wrong Like, I'm not one of those white people, I'm a cool white person. And I think like, yes, you know, I'm also not the type of white person like, who is overtly or consciously racist in my behavior, but I'm for sure benefiting from the privileges of being white and middle class, by the way, and heterosexual, by the way. I have to be real about that. I was brought up in Finland, which is, you know, not only white, but like, very white i really like didn't interact with people who were not from a really similar background to me on lots of levels until i came to the uk and even then like in a limited way so you have to actually look at yourself and be like am i a cool white person or do i actually just not know very much about other groups of people again like across all of these categories that we use to talk about people in general and intersections between them which i think is really important so That book was kind of like a turning point for thinking don't try and put yourself on the side of like not being the problem in terms of racial issues be aware of of your shortcomings as well like I don't know what you guys thought about it but like the people posting the black squares on social media and suddenly all of these people who had never been interested in having a sort of like sociological or cultural conversation um, suddenly you know they were posting like read this this is what racism means today or read this this is what the black experience is today and I was like why are you suddenly doing this guys you're not interested in it you're not taking action in your everyday life don't posit yourself as the hero in this story you need to take steps back basically rather than thrust yourself into the limelight by saying you're amazing so that that's what i mean when i say you know for setting up this company i wanted to not look at the figures and think so what percentage do i have to get for me to maintain my comfortable lifestyle but to think I've had a job where I've been paid pretty well, I've got savings, I can afford to not take a wage from this company, at least for a number of years while I'm growing it. So taking those steps in everyday life to actually be like, how do I take a step down? And how will my taking a step down allow other people to take a step up so I kind of think like the narratives around race I, I think they are such a minefield to navigate I'm not an expert I, I'm not the mouthpiece for what's right and wrong but I think I've looked at this situation from a really clear economic standpoint and I can see what I can do there that's beneficial which is I take less and I give other people the opportunity to take more.
2: It's interesting as well what often happens is the centering of white pain. So the amount of times that a non-white person will say I'm experiencing microaggressions from you, white person or this is you know, the socialised racism that you don't realise but I can see and feel right now and then Mm. said white person I call them um, well-meaning white people the WMWPs they will be like (laughs) oh my god, I didn't mean to be racist and then automatically you feel bad and they start crying and then everybody else in the room goes Oh, you've made Janet cry. And then all of a sudden, the white <laughs> person who's crying has their feeling centred mm. because they're feeling bad about being not great. And then the yeah. poor person of colour, who is the one who was actually the victim of the microaggression, ends up being like, okay, well... You're centering the white person's pain and you're probably going to ask me to apologise because I made Janet cry.
0: I I think like Robin D'Angelo, I saw in one of her interviews, she was talking about how she was in a meeting once and she was saying one of her colleagues was a black woman who she was actually friends with. But she was talking about going for a meeting, her and this colleague in another company or maybe it was a school or something like that. And she said, yeah, you know, all the white people in there were like, oh, look at her hair and stuff like that thinking her and her colleague are kind of like both inward on this situation like they're both in on it and her colleague just said to her like you and me were not in the same situation when that reaction occurred like don't make a joke about it i could make a joke about it but because you're there and because you like me doesn't mean that you actually have the right to do that so i think like the subtleties of it this is what i mean they're so complex and i don't pretend to know what to say in every situation like this is what why i say I'm sort of doing something financial and cultural and organisational because I don't know what to say on Instagram or Twitter that is going to solve everything and I don't know always how to react if I'm the only white person in a group of people of colour who are talking about their hair. You know, like I might find the joke funny, but I'm kinda like shit, should I laugh at that? Like I I experience the same awkwardnesses as other people, but I totally know what you mean about like white people making themselves the centre of it. And I think, you know, on so many any issues there's so much we could achieve if we would just put our egos to the side if we could just say do you know what I don't need to be the star of the show of transforming race relations in society I think that would go a long way
1: something I've been thinking about a lot recently is how nervous I get when someone starts explaining to me that they're a good person yeah suddenly I'm just like why do you feel the need to tell me that as long as we can sit there in that situation and say, Okay, I might fuck up right now. Mm. I don't quite know how to handle this. And even if I'm apologetic, that might trigger someone. Yeah. It might go wrong and I'm shit. <laughs> I th- I think you know, without actually destroying our self-confidence or self-worth, I think we should be allowed to say, Do you know what? I will I'll never understand this. I'm doing mm. my best, but it still might not be good enough. Yeah, and, and I for that to be okay. But
2: I think that takes a lot of self awareness. I think what we're yeah. seeing at the moment, the the people <laughs> I think in twenty twenty one, after Donald Trump and Brexit and George Floyd, mm. I think if you are still an all lives matter person, yeah, you don't wanna learn, you don't wanna be better, and you don't wanna be a good person you are deliberately not paying attention, right? Mm. And this is where it's difficult because we talk a lot about on this podcast, do you want to be right or do you want to be useful? Yeah, Fundamentally, I don't know if it's useful anymore to pander to it. Like the people on the right in this country are going to fabricate a culture war. It's always people on the right making up stories about everybody being offended. And everyone's like, hold on a second, when were we supposed to be offended about? Greece was the last one they're trying to ban Greece the musical um, yeah. <laughs> and i'm like Sorry. what what person has ever we all know Greece is old fashioned and sexist but i've never ever met a person who self identifies as woke who's ever petitioned the bbc or itv or channel 4 to stop playing yeah. Greece but Twitter's been a storm of it that happened last year as well I was like guys this Greece thing crops up every six months because clearly it's on TV again and it's never left wing people you know they're going to fabricate a culture war anyway so why do we have to keep being like I'm going to sit you down John and I'm going to explain to you at a certain point seven people have sat you down I don't want to work with you anymore and I don't want to yeah. be friends so I, I just... think
1: Holly to play devil's advocate here There are people of certain generations who I would say probably have been sat down a few times and they have been fed information. But I wouldn't say that they're making that information up. If you look at stuff that's coming out on the BBC, uh, even Sky News, actually, like the polarisation that's being encouraged Mm. by like from both sides. Sorry to be a cliche, but it's it's more the media than it is the right.
2: I think you're overlooking the fact that I think the media is the right. I can't think of a single news media that isn't other than maybe the Guardian that's like a respectable paper or broadcasting company that isn't
1: the right. Well I've spoken to a lot of people you know older generations perhaps more likely to sway towards conservatism in their older age and They do tend to think that the BBC is quite left wing.
2: There's been studies and studies and studies from incredibly high profile universities to private companies that have all come to the conclusion that the amount of airtime that right wing voices get is. I mean, all you have to do is look at the amount of times Nigel Farage has been on Question Time compared to Caroline Lucas, who's an actual MP. The reason old people think that the BBC News is very left-wing is because everybody else on the right is telling them that the BBC News is very left-wing. The Telegraph, the Times, the Mail, the Sun, the news is right-wing particularly the printed press. The Guardian's not particularly left-wing. The Guardian's kind of like woolly liberal Lib Dem left with a bit of (laughs) Labour sensibility. There is no left-wing mainstream press. I love The Guardian, but this is what I'm talking about. What are we supposed to do other than just be like, the truth is this, QAnon is not true, we are not trying to ban Greece.
0: Probably the reason why there isn't like a big uh, left-wing media organisation is because even people, as you say, like the Guardian is kind of left wing, but it's still got to be staffed by the liberal elite, because most of the time, you know, even the company that I was just working at, um, most people there are Oxbridge graduates, that's often the same story, at you know, major institutions, even like the Guardian. So it kind of necessarily produces a sort of culturally left wing, but actually reliant on the old structures of privilege and society staying sort of the same. I think this is like such a key thing that is happening nowadays, that there's kind of like a narrative of what side you're on or what your values are that gets overlaid on an actual framework of what's happening. So there's loads of people at The Guardian saying that they have certain values, but they live in multi-million pound houses in Hackney rather than in Chelsea. But it's kind of like same, same, but different.
2: Then that's where the argument for what you're doing right now becomes really strong and necessary and timely because what we have is capitalism running unchecked so you mm. have four billionaires owning most of the papers so the Guardian is different because it's not allowed to be run by any one person mm-hmm. and then you've got two publishers who own basically like it's the 99 percent owned mm. by one percent meanwhile the capitalists and stuff are saying free enterprise you know business yeah business. whereas actually that's not capitalism in doesn't really necessarily promote free enterprise so what you're doing is you're going all right I'm going to create this version with a slightly different outlook not put profits above everything else but eventually hopefully become sustainable yeah and you'll use elements of capitalism and elements of other belief systems well to basically be like profit for the sake of profit and growth for the sake of growth are not the be all and end all that we should want in this world
1: that's how a lot of ideas in various industries get sort of stumped out at a certain point because you're going, well, I want this to be diverse and I want it to be forward-thinking and groundbreaking. And then you start having to jump through money hoops. And what goes from, you know, an avant-garde piece of artwork ends up becoming like a sitcom set in an office with white men. And you don't even know how it happened. And the fact that you're going, okay, profit is just not important right now and I'm going to contribute this many years, this much time to it. You're not going to have to jump through any of those hoops.
0: One of the big issues that the publishing industry is facing in terms of increasing diversity. I mean, I don't even, like the word diversity is so problematic, but you know, that that, that is obviously um, an easy way to talk about this, but you know, the things that they're trying to do, I just think if there is this structure in the background where authors can expect to get about 7% royalties and the companies themselves are making billions in profit, if that structure exists, It does not matter how much you push your selected authors who are people of colour. It does not matter how much you push the few working class voices that you are using to make your brand look 21st century ready, because it just is the case that with that basic economic structure in place, you are placing financial hurdles in the way of people from those groups that you claim to support from joining in your industry like that is just how it is and that i think the companies you know it's not just publishing it's a lot of the creative industries companies are trying to market their way out of this problem and they're very much falling victim to the kind of issues um, in the white fragility book of trying to say not us, not us, not us, rather than saying we desperately need to restructure because we have a problem that is, you know, the way we operate is prohibitive for people from lower socioeconomic groups and people from marginalised groups that tend to have less money behind them. The path of least resistance where they can look the best, change the least and, you know, basically carry on as they are. It's incredibly frustrating. And like you say, Kate, it's it's true in, in
1: most of the arts industries.
2: So we've come to the most important part of the podcast where we ask the vital questions that... It's the only
1: reason we do it, really.
0: Yeah, it's the only reason I'm here.
2: The most important question for me and Kate is, what's your favourite Disney your movie? What's your favourite Disney movie?
0: My favourite Disney movie is The Old Mulan, not the live-action mm-hmm. one. <gasps> it's actually taken me years to accept that this is my favourite Disney movie, but <laughs> the facts speak for themselves Back when Blockbuster was a thing, I used to want to get Mulan out every weekend. So I guess I just loved it. I didn't watch it and was like, oh, I'm such a tomboy. I'd like to be in the army because I'm not like that at all. I just really liked it.
1: It's one of my favorites as well. And it's because as an adult, me and two friends rewatched it. We didn't realize how funny it was. I mean, it came out when I, I, think I was about 12 when it came out, but we didn't realize how funny it was. Yeah.
2: Okay. So that. So Mulan. I mean, feminist hero. You didn't go for the live action one, which we all were very excited with. Until she did. You see it? No. And I'm not going to because she she was all like um, anti Hong Kong.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of politics in there. No. Just watch the original again. There's a lot of politics in there. There's no
1: songs. And I'm not watching it if there's no songs. Yeah. I remember when I was about. I must have been nine or ten, and I watched A, a Little Princess, and I got really confused because there weren't any songs in it. Wait, what's A Little Princess? I was just, it's a kid's movie based on oh. a book, but it was the, the fact that I had only seen movie musicals and Disney films up until that point, and, and The Muppets, and they mm. all had songs in them. Yeah. So when I watched this, this beautiful film, I got so scared because there weren't any <laughs> songs in it.
0: You really emotionally relate to music. This is...
2: But it's not. It yes, I don't understand, be, understand it. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. seem to be like a positive
0: one. Yeah, it just it's just like a stress-related. This is triggering for you.
2: Like a compulsion. Yeah, I'm gonna
1: have to go get some acupuncture after this.
2: Anyway, <laughs> there are some less important
1: questions that come next. Yes, we always ask all of our guests this uh, because we find it interesting. Do you think you're an activist? Um, no, not really.
0: I wouldn't deserve that title compared to a lot of the work that people do. And I think most of the time, like things that I sort of try hard with, they can be difficult in some ways. But to be honest, it is like what I'm interested in and what I like doing. So no even with starting this company it was because I was like oh my god what about all the stories that I've not been able to read
1: so in a sense I think that answers our next question because our next question is when if ever do you turn off your activism now you're saying you don't think you're an activist it's acknowledging your privilege that actually I can Mm. turn off my activism if I I need to and I think maybe Mm. that's the difference
2: I think as well, like, I think there are different, like, levels of activism. Um, yeah. I know that, like, I did a couple of bits of activism, LGBT activism, around Europe a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. I was going to places in Europe to talk to gay and queer people from different countries all the around the EU. We were having discussion panels and making videos. Like, that was very clearly activism. Yes. Like, being, like, active... And speaking out when somebody says something in a regular meeting in a corporate world, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself an activist, but that is like an active thing to do. So I think it's like <coughs> two different layers. We're trying to kind of encourage people to be their own little activists, yeah. but that doesn't mean that you have to go to Speaker's Corner and be that white person or that straight person who speaks up for gay rights, you know? It, it, yeah, it's like layers, isn't
0: it? I try to be active. I I do think like um what I was saying before about not just talking about things and actually doing things that can make a difference. You know, I wouldn't be the most amazing person at, for example, standing at speaker's corner and letting everybody know like my two cents on something. But I am really committed to thinking about practical things that I can do in my. Life that will turn the world into a place that I think is better. Um, So, yeah, I'm active, but, yeah, what's the definition of activist? I don't know,
1: really. That's the best lesson I was taught when I first moved to London. I had a friend, and I was complaining to her about something to do with politics or injustice, and she said, stop complaining about it. And she was the most gentle soul ever. She was just like, Kate, just stop complaining about it. Go do something. I spend my weekends... (laughs) in the streets in Essex trying to look after these kids to stop them from ending up in gangs I've set up a youth center that I run for free I don't talk about it I just try and do something if it's pissing you off this much go and do something Mm. and I just shut my 20 year old mouth and and that was it
0: and that was it never the same again yeah
1: and I mean like even that question when you
0: say when do you turn yeah when do you turn it off it's kind of like I literally turn it off Every day when I go do like my food shopping or every day, it's now every week when I go do my one massive weekly food shop and I buy myself like extra yogurts when I could have spent that money on putting, I don't know, porridge oats in the food bank. You know, it's its kind of like we are constantly turning off our activism because we can't do everything
1: all the time. Such or like a good
0: observation. I turn it on like in one very small way.
2: But honestly, if we all just turned it on just like when it mattered, the world would be a better
1: place. We've got one more question. And God, is this question important at the moment? We've been asking it for three seasons. Now it just feels like the most relevant thing to say. But the world's a bit shit right now. And there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of doom scrolling going on. Can you give us a bit of sunshine and just make us feel a little bit more positive about the world?
0: I'm so bad at providing sunshine that is just like not my place in the world my place in the world is being like that's shit let's change it i'm really like not very good at providing sunshine what's good though the vaccine seems pretty good joe biden seems pretty good he seems pretty old but he seems pretty good Mm -hmm. um kamala harris obviously seems pretty good the young poet laureate was very good
2: To be fair, Catherine, you have just given like two of the most important things to get us through the next 50 years is a vaccine and a president who's not going to
0: nuke everybody. So Trump might go to jail. He didn't get to pardon himself. He may go to jail.
2: My little bit of sunshine is um, we've been on this call for an hour and 25 minutes and my very drugged up cat has been a... uh, a little angel for the whole time and she's currently she's just lay on her back with her head to one side and stretched out oh so animals are animals are my rays of sunshine and they've had a pretty good time this year so we didn't have enough time to do socials at the end of the podcast so here i am and i'm gonna do all of the socials by myself here we go Plugs, 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 plugs. So you can find Lafay Press online at www.lafaypress.co.uk. You spell Lafay, L-A-F-I-Y. Hopefully you know how to spell press. If you are interested in the merch, you can go to lafaypress.co.uk forward slash shop. So support some ethical businesses and buy some ethically sourced merch. It's a win-win. Swag! You can find them on Instagram at Lafi underscore press and you can find them on Twitter at lafi P. Sounds like her rap name to me. Remember, Lafi is L-A-F-I-Y. Kate is on Twitter and Instagram as Kate Lois Elliot. That's Elliot with two L's and two T's. Oh yeah. We are on Twitter at diversify pod and instagram instagram i'm instagramming all these plugs into as short amount of time as i can we are instagramming from diversify podcast you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify or direct from libsyn which is diversify.libsyn.com but if you're listening to this, you probably already knew that. So what would be brilliant would be if you could go on to Apple Podcasts and maybe give our podcast a five-star review. That would be banging. Thank you very much and we'll see you next week. And by see, we mean here. And by here, we mean you will only be hearing us. Bye. <coughs> Your fav- oh, no, we did it. Right, <laughs>
0: that right. was so good. Right. Why did you stop? Three,
2: two, one. What? What? What's your, your favorite,
1: favorite,
2: favorite Disney movie? Disney Why are you movie. making it sound like you're on a slow mo? What's That's your favorite because- Disney
1: movie? Yeah, it's be- it's what it is is because there-, there might be a lag anyway. Yeah, I'm just going to let Disney you know that Don't think about it, don't think that, about that it. Doing it like that
2: is definitely not how you make a lag better. <laughs> <laughs>